I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 91. Thank you, Mark, for that last hymn. That was wonderful uh, and fitting to what we're going to be looking at uh, today. It's so good to, once again, I think this is our sixth year to come up here to Palomar Mountain to get away from the everyday uh, routine of life, as it were, and to come to fellowship together, to sit under uh, good teaching um, thus far, and um, to fellowship together, to sharpen one another, to uh, be refreshed and to be strengthened so that we might go back down and have an impact in a decaying and dying world. Today we're going to be talking about the topic of safety and security. We're going to have themes of deliverance as well throughout, but safety is something you can't pick up a newspaper any day without finding something about safety. Our troops' safety are being threatened. This new automobile has new safety features, you know, the anti-lock brakes or whatever, the side airbags. These types of things are commonplace these days. Burglar alarms, car alarms, all these things to enhance our security, if you will, and, but they're really to no avail. Uh, think about pilots as they would fly, all the safety features that are in place, a myriad of things that, that we have some pilots with us that you must remember for safety. Um, security is something that we really think about a lot, especially after the bombing of the Twin Towers almost six years ago. The homeland security has been set up. There has been billions of dollars spent on our security as Americans. And even $34 billion just from 2001 to 2005. But you see, building bomb shelters, hiring homeland security, hiring more officers isn't really the secret to our security. It's a hope and trust in an unchanging God. It is trusting in Him. and He is our refuge and our fortress. Trusting in His protection, trusting in His deliverance that comes. That's what we're to be uh, trusting in. Now, Psalm 91 is a very comforting psalm. Many have turned here in times of sickness, times of trouble, times of despair. Uh, it has been used to the Lord in the lives of Christians for millennia. Luther has said that this is the most distinguished jewel among all the psalms of consolation. Uh, many have committed this psalm to memory. I'm actually in the process of doing that. After this study, I have come to the conclusion that this is one of the psalms that I need to memorize. Satan himself quoted part of this psalm during the temptation of Christ. We're going to look at that a little later. This has been called um, God's 911 text. Go here in case of emergency. Go here in case of trouble. Psalm 91 and verse 1, of course. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now, as we go through this, I want you to look at the themes as we would talk about the protection and the promised deliverance of God's people because it was true of the psalmist, but also it was true of Messiah, and it's true for each one of us as His chosen people. So, let's read the uh, text and get into this. Psalm 91. Please follow along with me. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions and under His wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. 
You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor any plague will come near to your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you, to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up with their hands, that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high, because he has known my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. And I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. Amen. Now, as we come to this psalm, just a couple words about the author. Uh, there's several psalms that are anonymous. I think it's actually 50. So one-third of the Psalter, we do not know who wrote it. Uh, some of those, we're pretty sure David has written. We're, not, we're really not sure who wrote this. Some have suggested Moses. Moses wrote Psalm 90. There's similar language. You've probably noticed that. Psalm 90 in verse 1. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. But the overall tones and themes of the psalm are altogether different. But this we know. We don't know who wrote it, but this we know is that the author was one of deep who knew had a deep spiritual experience and knew the, the scriptures very well. The flow of the psalm is very clear. There's three sections, verses 1 and 2. Um, verse 1 sort of serves as, as an introduction or a, a, the overall arching theme of what the psalm is about. Verse 2 is the psalmist speaking. Okay? Verse 3 to 13 is the psalmist to you individually. And then verses 14 to 16, the last section, um, appear to be with the change of pronouns, God speaking uh, to us, the divine eye, as it would go back to the first person. So today, with God's help, we're going to be looking at the believer's dwelling place, the believer's deliverance, and the believer's delight. Three Ds, very easy, very John MacArthur-ish, uh, that just fell into place uh, for me. But uh, the three Ds, the believer's dwelling place, the believer's deliverance, and the believer's delight. And we're going to see that the believer's security is founded upon these themes. The title of the message is The Believer's Security and Deliverance. So first of all, the believer's dwelling place. It is a refuge. It is a fortress here. He says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. The way to abide with the, with the Almighty is to dwell with God. Now, if you dwell with someone, what does that communicate? It communicates closeness. If I'm dwelling at the Kelly home, I'm going to be somewhat close to the Kellys. And the same, same idea is here, that if you're dwelling with someone, you are close to them. You are communing with them. You're spending time with them. As I said, verse 1 is sort of a summary verse of the whole psalm. It's a, a truth and, and it's the substance of all the rest. You remember Jesus has said in John 14, In my Father's house are many, what? Dwelling places. 
And I just love this language here. He who dwells in the shelter of the what? The Most High. And what does that communicate to you as you would think about that? It communicates to me a, a wonderful picture of the mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies, that place where the high priest could only go once a year. And then it was very for a very short time to sprinkle the blood and to get out. But this is a place that we have access to because of the work of Christ. A place that we don't go only once a year. A place that we can go and we can dwell there. We can spend time there. We can commune there. And the admission is free. It's up the free grace of the Gospel. We may freely enter and spend time with Him. And this is true of Christ as well, as He dwelt in that secret place in the Most High and enjoyed the protection of the Almighty and all that He accomplished for us. And in Him, His people are safe. These spiritual blessings that we're reading of here are true because of our forerunner, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the work that He has accomplished on our behalf. He says, the one who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. To abide communicates the idea of lodging there, of pitching a tent, of camping there, and staying there, having a desire to want to be there. It communicates again this glorious picture of His protection over us. And so the context, it's, it's very simple. He who truly relies, he who truly trusts in the Lord will have his divine protection. And isn't this wonderful? We'll abide in what? The shadow of the Almighty. Now, let's think about this for a minute. Picture a four- and a five-year-old child, your kids. You go to Mission Bay Park where the, um, the playground equipment is. Lots of other families, lots of other kids, lots of strangers, lots of guys sitting on park benches, lots of big dogs maybe running around. And the children are playing, but the children, will they be concerned? If, they're, if the shadow of their father is near them, they have a, a sense of complete, complete security and comfort in knowing that they are safe. That's the idea here. We'll abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Because you are close to the Almighty, you can be assured of your protection as you would dwell with Him. Well, the psalmist declares in verse 2 his faith and his trust in his, his covenant God. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Now, this is just glorious here. Notice the four metaphors here uh, that are used to describe our security to God. He speaks of the shelter we've already talked about, the shadow that we've just spoken about, which talks about that protection. But a refuge, what does that communicate? A place of safety, a place of security, and a fortress. That's our defense, a fortress. Beautiful metaphors just to describe the security that we have with God. If there's anything we can come away from what we've read so far, you can trust this God. And that's what he says here. My God in whom I trust. But notice also the four names for God. These speak volumes here. First of all, it says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. That communicates a sense of reverence. A sense of, of, of that this is the highest one, the Most High one. It's Elyon in the original. And then he talks about the Almighty, that's Shaddai. We sung about that last night, right? In El Shaddai. 
That, that's the, the word that's translated as the Almighty God and usually communicates something of the terror of God because of His mighty works. It's the word that occurs again and again in the book of Job, which produces reverence and fear for God. It's only used two times in the Psalter, and this is one of them. Abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And then he says, the Lord, that's Jehovah, uh, which occurs many times. And then where he says, my God in whom I trust, that's Elohim. That's, that's the word that occurs again and again in Genesis. In the beginning, God, that's the word right there. So it's, that's the Most High, the Almighty, Jehovah, Jehovah God and my God, Elohim. So that's the believer's dwelling place. That's a good place to dwell, isn't it? So moving on, the believer's deliverance. And we will be spending most of our time here. We're going to be looking at verses 3 and 4 in particular because there is repeated themes through this. And so this is not a verse-by-verse exposition. Uh, I'm just going to say that at the very beginning here. So let's consider now the believer's deliverance. And it is glorious because it comes from the protection and the security of God himself. Now let's read 3 and 4 again. For it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence, and He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you may seek refuge, and His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. Your safety and your protection does not come from buying the newest Volvo with all the, 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 the uh, safety features that are there, or the most top-of-the-line home security system, or the best safe that has a three-hour fire rating of 1,800 degrees. Your security does not come from these things. Your security comes from God. He is the one who delivers you from the snare of the trapper. Now, the NIV and the King James has the word fowler there. And the word in the original just means one who lays bait, one who would hunt and laying bait to trap and to catch something. Um, the word actually only occurs four times in the Old Testament, but there's two occasions in Proverbs and Hosea where it indicates one who traps birds, and that's why it's translated fowler in places. But the idea here is it's one that lays bait to try to catch something. He delivers you from the snare of the trapper. Now, what is a snare? The snare is the trap, obviously. But what is the snare for us? It's the enticement. It's the allurements. It's the, it's the temptations, the attractions of the cares of this world and of sin. And I think clearly here, Satan and his enemies are the trapper. Those are the ones who would want to trap you, as well as the enemies of God. We have an enemy who is seeking to and fro, seeking someone to devour, someone to consume, someone to, to trip up. Paul says in his very last letter in Second Timothy that, that, that they may come to their senses and escape what? The snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. He is tricky. He is crafty. He is altogether crafty. And he, is, he knows how to trip men up. He's been at it for 6,000 years. How long have you been a believer fighting the enemy? You know, 10, 20, 30, 40, maybe 50 for some of you. 6,000 years he has been at this work. And he is not, he's not, he knows how to do it, let's just say. If you're a fowler and you're trapping birds and you have one method of catching a duck, you're not going to use that same method to catch a red-tailed hawk, more than likely, right? 
or what you're used to catch a red-tailed hawk, whatever that would be, you're not going to use to catch a wild turkey. Well, the same is true for the trapper. He is wiser than that. He knows how to lay the right bait. He knows how to, to tempt um, individuals uh, to various sins. One may be tempted more to lust, more to jealousy and envy, to where there will be temptations and bait laid out that you might feed that, that sin of jealousy or envy. Maybe it's drunkenness. Maybe it's gluttony. Whatever it is, he adapts the temptation to the sinful inclinations of sinful men, knowing what those are for you individually. A wonderful book that I commend to you is Thomas Brooks, the great Puritan work, Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices. And in this book, Brooks, in a very uh, unique way, lays forth the various devices that the enemy, that Satan, would lay forth for the people of God. And then he gives the remedies, a whole series of remedies for each one. And the device would be the trap that he lays. And I'm just going to read a couple of these to you and commend the, the book to you to read. First of all, right at the very beginning, he says, by presenting the bait with hiding the hook. Well, that's very simple, right? But isn't that true? The bait is dangling there, and you can't see the hook. And the bait looks good. It might even smell good. And and there's an appeal to the bait, but the hook is hidden. He goes on. Actually, he says, to keep away from sin and to keep away from playing with the bait would be one of the remedies. But also, Satan would paint sin with virtuous colors. Satan would also present God to the soul as one who is made up all of mercy. I've been meeting with someone for the last few months that, that has this mentality that he can sin just grossly, and God just loves him so much, he's just going to forgive him no matter what. That is folly. That goes against the teaching of the Bible. Brooks would go on by, pers- by persuading the soul that repentance is easy and therefore the soul need not worry about it. These are the types of, of traps that are laid forth, the traps of bait that are there for you as a new covenant Christian seeking to live a life that's pleasing to God in this world. We have to be careful of pleasures as they would be offered to us. All too often they're sweet to the taste, they're sweet to the smell. But once they reach the stomach, they become very bitter. Actually, Spurgeon uh, points out that where the most beautiful cacti grow, there the most deadly venomous snakes will be there at the root. Paul exhorts the Thessalonians to examine everything carefully and to hold fast to that which is good. Well, notice in our text, he says that, for it is he who delivers you. He is the one who delivers you. And this word means to snatch away, to deliver, to rescue. It even can mean to strip or to plunder. It sometimes, I think, what it communicates is that, yes, He will rescue you, but it may be at the very last moment to snatch you away to a place of safety. And again, Spurgeon points out that, that He delivers us from the trapper, but all, or from the snare, but also out of the snare. And God often sends trouble and tribulations and difficulties and trials into our lives for this very purpose, to strengthen our faith. God often delivers His children by, by, cause, by throwing them onto their knees that they would cry out in mercy, pleading for deliverance, and then He comes. As the psalmist would say in verse 15, He will call upon me and I will answer Him. Or in Psalm 50, 
uh, where he says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I shall rescue you, and then you will honor me. And brothers and sisters, isn't this wonderful how God works out our sanctification process, how He's working us to put to death remaining sin and to grow in holiness and to grow in usefulness in the kingdom of God. And sometimes it's, it's as though if, the, if these temptations were to come upon us at a time maybe eight months ago that comes upon us today, you look back and you say, I may have actually fell eight months ago if that temptation and that bait was placed there. But by God's grace... He has strengthened me and my faith is strengthened to where I can say no to that and I can run as Joseph did. That's the infinite wisdom of God. He will not tempt you beyond what you are able. And that's wonderful. And I love the King James Version. The NAS has, uh, for it is He who delivers you. The King James and the NIV both have, surely He will deliver you. Isn't that wonderful? Surely He will do it. Both, I think, in time, right now as we live our lives, but ultimately in eternity. Surely He will deliver you. And Brian spoke on this last night, the deliverance of Paul, that the idea there of a past deliverance, a present deliverance, and a hope of a future deliverance there, that threefold deliverance. And I think that is true here too. Surely, brethren, He will deliver you in the times of the fiercest temptations and difficulties that you go through, surely He will deliver you. The character of God ensures it. He cannot lie. The atonement of Christ secures it for you if you are one of His elect children. He says, I lose none, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. Surely He will deliver you. None of the elect are lost. None are cast away. Or else God is a liar, and the book... might as well just be thrown away. No, surely He will deliver you. You can trust that. The covenant of grace as well secures it because as the Father has sent the Son to accomplish a work, the Son will now come and present a holy bride to the Father, complete, missing none of its parts, missing none of its members. But the sad reality is, is that sometimes we do take the bait. Sometimes we are trapped Sometimes we're trapped there for a short time and God allows that for His purposes. I'm reminded of Pilgrim's Progress. Poor Christian having left Vanity Fair and as they're going along and the road is rocky and and bumpy and they see the meadow off to the side and how smooth the grass is. Why, Why wouldn't God have us to walk over here? They go through a stile. And hopefully the young, the new believer is saying, Are you sure this is right, Christian? I think we ought to stay on the way, even if it's difficult. Next thing you know, they end up where? In Doubting Castle and Giant Despair. But again, surely God will deliver you. What happens? All of a sudden, there's a key of promise. And the key unlocks the cage, and they're able to escape, and they are free. God delivers. But later, they're ensnared by the flatterer. Again, right? Who promised a new way and they cast a net. The flatterer cast a net over them. This time, a shining one comes and beats them black and blue. And uh, they're beaten sore. And as that shining one, which is a picture of the angel, he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. And then frees them and sets them on our way. The brethren, I share those examples because it is true that sometimes we become ensnared. Sometimes we are tripped up. But He will provide a way of escape even then. 
And if you just think for a moment in your own life, I hope you can remember times of deliverance, times where God has demonstrated his faithfulness, manifested by his providence, which I hope is, 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 is invoked in you a praise and an adoration for God, for his care for you. But notice also, verse 3, he will deliver you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. The deadly pestilence. Now, this is obviously speaking of something dreadful, a pestilence, a disease, a, a plague. It occurs in verse 3, verse 10, and verse 6. The pestilence is repeated in 6. It's spoken of as a plague in verse 10. Again, a repeated theme through here. Uh, an interesting story from Spurgeon's actually own, his own life when he was uh, 20 years old. I think this is just before he got married or just after he got married. But very young to be a pastor, first and foremost. And he's only been in London for less than a year. And a, uh Asiatic cholera came to the region. And family after family were calling him to the sickbed in their home. And he was visiting the grave almost daily. And he says here, I'm just going to read this quote because it's very fitting. <clears throat> he says, I became weary in body and sick of heart. My friends were falling one by one. And I felt I was getting sick like those around me. This burden was heavier than I could bear, and I was ready to sink under it. As I was returning home from a funeral, my curiosity led me to read a paper that was up in a shoemaker's window. Written on it in bold handwriting was verses 9 and 10 of our psalm here. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High thy habitation, there shall no evil befall you, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. Of course, he was reading it in the King James. He, this is what he says. The effect on my heart was immediate. Faith appropriated the passage as her own. I felt secure, refreshed, girt with immortality. I went on with my visitation in a calm and peaceful spirit. I felt no fear of evil and I suffered no harm. What a wonderful thing to have a passage of Scripture resonate at a time of weariness, a time that appeared to me from his words, he's about ready to give up as a young minister and hear these words, encourage him and strengthen him and give him a renewed strength perhaps like he's never had before. And this is my prayer for you today that this psalm would have a new meaning to you, a meaning to where you would return again and again, and that it would strengthen your faith as you would look to God as your refuge and fortress. But also notice how this points to Christ. And again, this whole psalm points to Christ in a glorious way. He also was, uh, preserved him from the snare of the devil as well as the spiritual pestilence of sin. But look at verse 4. He says here, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge, and his faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. Verse 4, he covers you with his protection. The psalmist is saying this again and again. He's speaking of the shelter and the shadow, and now it's a covering of feathers to you. The inside part, the place, the place where it's most safe and it's most secure, under the, the, the wings... And again, the, the such loving condescension of the Lord here to, to, that He likens Himself to a female bird taking care of His young. Isn't that glorious? Those who trust in the Lord and His perfect providence 
are like little chicks that always find protection under their mother's wings. You know, a little chick that can hardly do anything for itself, falling down and bobbling, but it finds protection under mother's wings. Didn't Christ use this analogy as well in the last days of His life as He would look at a hardened, uh, a hardened uh, people, the Jews? He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I would gather you, gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. See, brethren, the best place of safety is a commitment to God. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a true relationship uh, with God. It's, it's, a, it's a relationship with Jesus Christ which, which affects all of life, not just how you live on Sunday. It affects all your thinking, all your attitudes, everything, your whole perspective, your whole world view. It will affect your speech, your actions, and, and how you carry yourself. And your character will be shaped in a way as it is being conformed into the image of Christ, a way that is pleasing to God. Well, in the last phrase in verse 4, is faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. And we just sung of that. Um, Mark picking number 92 there, that Martin Luther hymn. And here, I think, the King James has the idea of truth, but, but it's his faithfulness, his truth, it's the truth of the Word of God and what He promises to us that is our shield and our bulwark. That is our defense. That is our protection to the believer. That this is, It's a shield that, that protects you from the onslaught of the enemy. And the buckler, the idea that, that you're surrounded with protection in the day of trouble and in battle. This is the truth of God's Word. He will deliver you. He will be there for you. And He who promises said, He will never leave you or forsake you. No matter how high the heat is turned up, no matter how fierce the intensity of the affliction, He will not leave you. He does not abandon His children. Well, we're going to look very briefly at the next set of verses here in verses 5 to 13. He says in verses 5 to 8, the troubles of the day and night here, the idea that they will not harm you, they will not alarm you. He says, you will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lies waste at noon. Again, these are repeated themes, so we're not going to um, unpack these uh, in detail. Again, it appears to be two types of danger, the snares of enemies and then the pestilence or plagues. And we ought not be surprised as God's children when we encounter tribulations, when we encounter trials. It should not take you by surprise. Jesus has said in this world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Spurgeon, speaking of the idea of here for us to not be afraid, he says worldlings may well be afraid, for they have an angry God above them, a guilty conscience within them, and a yawning hell beneath them. But we who rest in Jesus are saved from all of these through rich mercy. The idea of this deadly pestilence, again, in verse 3, 6, and 10, are repeated themes here. And Just think back in the history of the last several hundred years of the various plagues that have come to this world. 
There's that Justinian plague in AD 540, I think, where it was five to 10,000 people a day dying. Uh, this, this is stuff we're not accustomed to. It's you know, not really happening right before our eyes. Um, the Black Plague in the 14th century, killing 75 million people worldwide. One-third of Europe wiped out. That's a conservative number. It's one-third to two-thirds. Can you imagine one-third of this country wiped out? It's, that's, that's amazing. The Great Plague of London, which was killing five to 10, 000, or 2,000 uh, per week in London in 1665. And God, in his mercy, sends the Great Fire of London months later, which put an end to the plague, but burnt down much of London the bubonic plague 100, 150 years ago. All this death and pestilence and, and killing, and some have likened maybe the AIDS epidemic to a new pestilence in Africa, which it is a very uh, big problem there. But what is the worst type of pestilence? What is the worst type of plague? It is sin. That is the greatest plague that we have to contend with. That is the plague that has not gone away. That is a plague that does not appear for one part of history. It is a plague that is pervasive through all of history. There is no son of Adam that is free from that plague. It is pervasive and it affects every soul that ever lived except for one. The Christ man, Jesus Christ. He alone was untouched by the venom of this plague. We are all plagued by the plague of sin, but He alone was untouched. Verses 9 to 13, uh, you'll be protected by, from a myriad of dangers here. Verse 9 and 10 says, For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place. No evil will befall you nor will any plague come near your tent. Essentially, the psalmist is repeating the theme that those who dwell with God and near God will not encounter these difficulties. You will be secure. Now, does that mean we're completely secure from a physical ailment? Of course, it doesn't mean that we're not ever going to be afflicted with that. It means that we'll have ultimate deliverance. The next set of verses speak of uh, this, the angels, for he will give... For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in your hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra and the young lion and the serpent. You will trample down. Now, we're not going to unpack what the doctrine of angels uh, here. You can study that for yourself. The most concise um, thing that I have read is Francis Turretin, which he has about 40 or 50 pages on it. Um, if you really want to learn about that. But let's just suffice it to say, to point out that this is the very passage, or should I say part of it, that Satan quoted in the temptation of Christ in Matthew chapter 4. He quoted verses 11 and 12, but he left out part of verse 11. Of course, he misquoted it, right? As the deceiver of the brethren, he left out to guard you in all your ways. So he said he will give your angels charge concerning you to bear you up with his hands. He left out to guard you in all your ways. The idea that, that as we would follow the Lord and as we walk in his ways, we're not going to put the Lord God to the test. And that's exactly what Jesus answered back with, right? And I think there's an irony here because he quotes Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12, or part of it. But look at verse 13. He doesn't quote this. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra and the young lion. 
and the serpent you will trample down. You see, the Bible calls Satan a roaring lion. He calls him the serpent of old. And we are told that we will trample over him. And how much more true of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has triumphed. He has overcome by trusting in God. And those who are redeemed will likewise do the same. And it's remarkable to me that during that temptation, he's quoting a passage about angels The angels are not visible at that time. Jesus is answering with the word of God, but the angels are present because immediately after the temptation, the angels come and minister to him. The idea of to tread upon is to tread upon and to have mastery over. Calvin says it's the idea to walk over. So that's that's true of you as a new covenant Christian to tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. And several verses could be uh, quoted here, but we're going to skip that for now. Now let's look. We've seen the believer's dwelling place, the believer's deliverance, and now the believer's delight, which is the promises of God from God to the faithful. Notice these verses. These are glorious. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. This is a glorious confirming oracle of God himself. Again, the pronoun shift. It's been you, 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 you. Now, it's I, and it's the divine I. It's God speaking here. And these, I hope you notice the I wills here. Let me just read them for you again. I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high. I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him, and I will satisfy him. That is the promise of God from God to you as a faithful child. And that is glorious. He's not so much speaking to the trusting soul, but he's speaking of the trusting soul there in the third person. But it is a promise that, could, that, that is true. And it's interesting how you think about how this might have been sung, because this certainly was sung um, it's some type of a chorus. Maybe this was a chorus part here. So first of all, there's two main thoughts here. What God will do, and that's, that's the six I wills, and those are perfectly true of Messiah. God has delivered him. God has set him at the right hand of the Father. God answered him in this time of trouble. God was with him, rescued him, and satisfied him with a victorious atonement. But then also, notice the reason why. And there's three. Because he has loved me, because he has known my name, he will call upon me. And this is wonderful here. Because you love the Lord. No, not perfectly. But because you strive to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And you have known my name. You know who to call upon. You know, you know who your God is. And you call upon Him in time of difficulties and trouble. So again, the, the, the themes here, the protection from the one who is in danger in verse 14, the, the, the answer uh, to the one who is in trouble who calls upon the Lord, verse 16, the promise of long life and salvation to the one that is trusting the Lord, and verse 16. 
Let me ask you this. Have you been or are you today satisfied with God? Are you satisfied with God and what He is doing in your life? Are you satisfied with God and and who He is and all of His covenant promises to you as a child of God? You're to delight yourself with Him. With a long life, I will satisfy Him. I think there's the definite, immediate um, fulfillment there and ultimately an eternal fulfillment. Satisfied with Him. I love that McShane hymn that, that says at the very end that not till I get there will I truly know how much I owe. And we, we just can't even begin to imagine what, we, what, what God has done for us in our salvation. We know in little snippets and what the Word of God says as we look inside and we see our transformed life. But to be face to face with Him in that time of eternity will be very revealing. And then at the end of verse 16, let him see my salvation. The margin says, cause him to feast his eyes on my salvation. Isn't that wonderful? So it's more than a long life here. It's being filled with all the fullness of God, having the frame of mind that is consumed with the mercy and grace of God in your life, seeing and experiencing in your own life the sufficiency of Christ in all things. And how He ministers to you in your time of need. Brethren, I hope that you will purpose to drink this psalm in. Drink it in. Let it satisfy you. Let it strengthen your faith. So We've seen the believer's dwelling place, deliverance and delights, and just a few points of application. This is your ultimate security. It's not all those things that I've mentioned. All these things that Americans tend to run to having a cell phone, ready to call 911, the emergency services, or whatever. This is where your ultimate security lies. It's trusting in God who is your refuge and your fortress. It's a complete dependence upon Him, a trust in Him, that He is working all things together for good, even in your life. Have you experienced this safety and security in your life? When was the last time you thanked God for your deliverance from the pestilence of sin. When's the last time you contemplated as you look at your own sin and we're all so fully aware, I trust, of your own sin and you lay that aside God's holiness and how, how stark of a difference it is, that huge divine contrast that is there and you see how miserably you fall short. That should cause you to praise Him for His grace. Thank Him for the blood of Christ that cleanses you and makes you whiter than snow, that, that completely purifies you because His righteousness has now been applied to you. That's why the ordinance of the Lord's Supper is so, so good for our souls and how it strengthens our faith because we're reminded of that fundamental truth again and again, aren't we? The psalm should strengthen your faith and give you courage. We need courage in this life. I fear that we, this next generation that is being raised are so pansy and non-confrontational that I don't know where our country will be 30 years from now. You must have courage as a child of God that you trust God and you are faithful with your mouth and your proclamation of who He is. And when you hear His name blasphemed, you speak up and say, that is my God you're speaking against. Please do not do that. 
courage. Courage, because you have this trust and the security that is there. It's as though you've got like the cartoons, this bulletproof shield about you that, that you don't have to fear about any danger. You can go forth serving Him. And He will surely deliver you. Yes, in this life there may be difficulty. Yes, there are Christians being persecuted for their faith. Even now, as we're speaking during this hour that we're meeting, but He will ultimately deliver you. And you will be with Him face to face. Well, just very briefly, a word uh, to those who, who are here and maybe have not yet trusted Christ. Some of you, especially some of you young people, I know the, the mindset can be that I'm very self-sufficient. I've got my whole life in front of me. What do I have to fear? What's all this talk about security? I want to buy a gun when I'm 18. I want to have all this. What folly... What folly? You need to realize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And if you want to be delivered, you need to look to the Deliverer, the One who can deliver you. Look to the One that was a substitute for unworthy sinners and put your faith and your hope and your trust and cast everything upon Him and He will save you. It's not looking to your own efforts. It's not looking to your own works. It's not thinking, well, I was brought up in a Christian home. I'm not going to do this, 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 this. Certainly God will be pleased with me. No! You must trust in the righteousness of another, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And we who are here, who are saved, are no better than you. It's only because of God's wonderful grace and mercy that He has transformed us. You must trust in and believe in Christ. Repent of your sins, and He will cleanse you. Let us pray. Father, we are reminded today that we are weak, that we are frail. We need to be reminded again of Your complete protection that You promise, the protection that is true of every child of God. Lord, how I pray that You would strengthen our faith. How I pray that You would make us men and women who are courageous. Lord, that that we would have a renewed hope and trust in You. Oh Lord, we do pray, even as You did for Mr. Spurgeon, that this psalm would be appropriated with to our faith and that our faith would be strengthened because of it. We bless you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.